I'm going to be reading the passage for tonight. It comes from Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are free. Beware of false prophets who come to you dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. <coughs> Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare them, I have never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hello? Just going to move everything around for the worship team's sake. Um, how are we doing? Okay, good. The, uh, I mean, I feel like by next week we're going to really get this down, and then, well, the summer. So, appreciate that. Uh, so, second to last large group, as I just mentioned, uh, kind of a big deal. Um, and I just want to repeat what Miranda said earlier, that we're going to do something for the seniors. So, if you are a senior, we'd love you to come back. And if you are Noah Sr., invite them along, uh, especially if they've uh, come around at some point during RUF. We will have a gift um, in RUF's love language, which is books, uh, so you'll get a book. I won't tell you which one, uh, but Ruben and Maddie, if you twist their arm, might. So uh, anyway, so we'd love to have you. And we'll have like a cheat cake. It'll be kind of a party at the end, so it'll be really nice. So okay. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. This is RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and however you are. And we really mean that. We don't want to be just representing one scene on campus. We would love to represent every scene on campus, no matter where you would call home on campus or where you call home originally. We hope that you can feel welcomed here and we hope to welcome you. and really, we mean that even with Jesus and Christianity. Maybe you don't feel super comfortable with, especially passages like we just read, uh, or maybe you do. Um, and we're glad that you're here wherever you stand on those issues. Um, and we just want to want you to feel like uh, you can come and be a part of this with us. So I'd also just like to to thank Shearer Presbyterian Church that brought the snacks. We've got one representative who braved the floods uh, in the back. Um, and also, if you're new. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, we appreciate your time, especially this time of year and the risk it takes. Or newish, even. Hey, if you're newish, we're glad you're here too. Count that as you will. All right. So, this semester, um, I'm going to try this one more time. Here we go. So, I preached this Sunday, and the pulpit was really low, so I'm very self conscious. Okay, so this semester in large group, we've uh, been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been looking at these chapters five through seven of Matthew and his gospel. And as I've said before, these words of Jesus are essential Christian reading. 
they have been historically central to every generation's understanding of who Jesus is, what Christianity is, what it means to be a Christian, and really every culture's understanding of that as well. Um, it's been a kind of a worldwide look at the Sermon on the Mount as sort of the central meat of what it means to be a, a Christian and who Jesus is. So, but I've said this before and I'll say it again, whether you're Christian, you call yourself Christian or you wouldn't call yourself Christian, all of us tend to read these three chapters the same way as just some more good advice that we should really get around to. And I'd really ask us to breathe and instead receive Jesus' invitation. Uh, this is what Jesus meant this passage to be. He meant it to be an invitation that we get to step into a renewed way of living. We get to put on an entirely different perspective on how this life works and what this life is about. And our passage is really going to do that for us tonight, I think. It's a really direct invitation to do those two things. Because Jesus is highlighting by contrast, he's setting up a difference between what it means to follow Jesus and Christianity over and against kind of life as usual. He's going to make a real stark contrast for us. So we're going to take a look at that. So let's pray again. Would you pray with me and for us? So we turn to Jesus' pretty challenging words tonight. Father, I have to admit I'm a little scared. I don't really like preaching on passages like this. Uh, It's a difficult passage in a lot of ways, and I felt uh, fairly not up to the task. Um, But you've carried us through. Um, You've been faithful, and I pray that you would be faithful in the next half an hour or so, that you would really move move our hearts. Help us to think deeply uh, about what Jesus is trying to get at. Help us to understand these words afresh. Maybe they're very familiar. Maybe they're extremely unfamiliar. And I pray that you would encourage us, um, no matter where we are with them, that we felt we felt like tonight we could wrestle with them. And I pray, Jesus, that you would approach us, that you would meet us wherever we are, and that you would change us and by your spirit. We ask these things in your name, that you might be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. Amen. So I wanted to take a moment uh, to talk about and think about adulting. Uh, Adulting is one of those fun words that uh, it's a time that you may have already had or maybe you will have when you do adult things and make adult decisions. For those of you who have been the last decade not on social media, uh, this happens mostly off campus, I'd argue. Uh, Mostly it happens on breaks, sometimes on breaks. When you're getting a summer internship, and you need to find housing. I would call that adulting. (laughs) Or when you have a car that you rarely use on campus, but you start using it more and you realize that it requires updated insurance and like gas and oil maintenance, and you have to take it a certain number of miles, you have to take it to a mechanic, that's called adulting. Or this idea of dry cleaning, that's also adulting. Uh, When you have to do dry cleaning, that's really tricky. Um, And as you look seriously at the rest of your life, I want to give you some unsolicited adulting advice. Unsolicited adulting advice. Very helpful. I'd like to just underline how old I am. That's what we're doing right now. I'm giving you some unsolicited advice. And here it is. Things aren't always the way they seem. Often what's promised is not actually what happens. Often what's promised, especially by life, by well-meaning people, is not actually how it works. What happens. I know that's very frustrating. So let me unpack that a little bit. Here's just some small little instances. For instance, a reasonably priced vacuum cleaner does not actually vacuum. I know, I don't understand it either. Why do you sell these? Why do they sell reasonably priced vacuum cleaners that don't vacuum? I don't get it. 
Okay, here's another one. Ready? Please, please, please don't buy a push mower. Okay, they look very easy to use. They have a good price point. Okay, they have environmental advantages, I know, but when you push them, they don't actually mow. <laughs> True story. Especially if your yard is mostly made of weeds like mine. Really doesn't do the trick. So I was thinking about all of these things, big categories, this past morning, this past Saturday morning when I was off campus and adulting. In fact, I had ditched my push mower, left it in the garage, and I had bought, I went to Home Depot, felt like a man child there, but then ended up buying this battery operated mower, uh, which I spent a lot of money on because I figured it had to be good. And then I was mowing my yard on Saturday morning and I was listening to a podcast, um, which basically took my manhood down a notch. Uh, but anyway, uh, and I, was re- and I was thinking about this podcast as I was reflecting on the mower and the idea of mowing. And it was one of those moments where the podcast kind of like reflected what I was thinking and then took me to a whole different level of where I was thinking. Um, and it was a podcast I'd never heard before. Uh, and the episode in particular uh, was really helpful. And it's, it, the episode's like this. There's this host, Jonathan, who has a friend named Gregor. And uh, Gregor comes to him at work and sort of, uh, he's not in a good life space. Let's just put it that way. And on paper, Gregor's life is going fine, arguably good. Okay, he's got a good, he's got a, a wife he loves, he's got a young child, he's got a good, steady paying job, and he's got a good, steady paying job in his field, which was fine arts, which is really hard to find. Okay, he makes marketing videos. However, Gregor has this sinking suspicion that continues to grow that his friends, when he looks around them, that they're all, they've all made it. You know, they've made it. Uh, his, that friend is a CEO. Those four friends are senior VPs at a prestigious company. His elementary school library, librarian's son, true story, his elementary school librarian's son is the president of Estonia. Okay? He's counting all of these people. <laughs> He's saying, I could have been the president of Estonia. Meanwhile, Gregor instead is making commercials with close-up sequences of Drano's Unclog, unclogging pipes and that kind of action, the, whirl, the whirlpool action. Um, Gregor describes life like playing musical chairs. Suddenly the music has stopped and he doesn't know if he even has a chair to sit in. And it seems like everyone else is well seated. And when he looks at the chair he's supposed to sit on, he's like, that's not my chair. That's not where I'm supposed to sit. But there's this one story that's really interesting that Gregor returns to repeatedly when he gets in this tirade. And it's about what he, it's about the sort of how he missed out or was left behind in a friend's like almost instantaneous uh, acceleration to worldwide fame. About 20 years ago, Gregor lent a failing, broke techno musician named Moby a CD set called Sounds of the South. Sounds of the South. He gives him this set of, this box set of CDs that no one's ever heard of. And Moby samples several of these early gospel and blues recordings to make the album play, which went platinum in over 20 countries <laughs> and continues to be on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums in the 340s. It's amazing. It's a huge worldwide phenomenon. Simply put, the album Play made Moby worldwide famous and incredibly wealthy. It's like one of the most licensed, the songs from that are the most licensed songs in the history of music. It's like every commercial you've ever seen has, a, has probably a song from Play. But Gregor never even got a thank you, and he didn't get his CDs back. 
And so this whole podcast is about Gregor going to Jonathan and Jonathan taking Gregor and flying him to L.A. to go to Moby's house to ask Moby to return Gregor's CDs of the song Sounds of the South. This is a true story. Gregor thinks he's getting his CDs. He thinks that like if he gets his CDs back, it's going to be some sort of consolation, right? Like it's going to make him feel like his life matters. That he has some part to play that's been acknowledged by Moby in this guy's like meteoric rise to fame and incredible wealth, right? But when Gregor and Jonathan go to Moby's door, and they come inside, and they, have this, they eventually start to have this awkward conversation that turns into kind of trying to describe Gregor's quest to feel significant. Moby shocks them by telling them about how the promises of fame have completely failed him. Moby shares that after the album play, his musical stock slips, as you probably never, some of you never heard of him. Album sales fell, and his picture, like he sort of describes the scene where his picture behind the receptionist's desk slowly gets replaced by different rock stars who are doing better in his music company. So like the, the picture that's at the music company when he walks in to talk to his producer changes from Moby to Jack White and to other musicians. Uh, and then when Gregor pushes back on this, like all of us are thinking, like you're still really famous and you still have a top 500 album of all time, uh, Moby says this, the kick in the teeth of fame is that if you don't have it, you beat yourself up that you don't have it. And if you do have it, if you are famous, you're miserable. Literally the most depressed I have ever been in my entire life was at the height of my professional success. And then Moby goes on to tell the story about the night before he won the MTV Music Award in Barcelona, Spain. He's staying in the penthouse apartment of one of the most luxurious, beautiful hotels in the entire world. And there are three other world-class rock stars staying in these, this, this kind of four-part apartment with him. Like John Bon Jovi, Madonna, P. Diddy. It's like an amazing scene, okay? And he talks about how before he goes to bed that night, he's uncontrollably crying and he's thinking about how he can kill himself then Moby says this profound I, I would say very adult very mature statement you think that when you get to where you want to go finally you'll be happy but then you get to where you want to go and you're just as miserable as you were in fact you're even more miserable because you no longer have anything to aspire to and you feel this hopelessness because what's left to aspire towards? Okay, that's depressing. <laughs> but before we dismiss that, it's completely depressing. Let's hear, hear out what Moby's trying to say there. What is Moby saying about what we all aspire to? Will that future, will that success be all that satisfying? Is what's being constantly on offer, what's constantly being promised by seemingly nameless people all over the Davidson campus, all over your childhood, all over your young adulthood, is that actually going to happen? What if things are not always what they seem? What if where we want to go isn't where the happiness and the hope are? What if it's just not there, where we think it is? These are the kind of questions that Moby's words to Gregor provoke. And they are seriously similar to the kinds of questions behind Jesus' words to us. You see, Jesus means to be extremely disruptive. He's deeply disruptive in our passage tonight. 
He's challenging us to think beyond school, beyond the next professional step, beyond the next experience, even beyond our life's work or life's partner. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23, Jesus is asking us to think deeply about two big questions. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And how do you choose to live? Where do you want to go and how do you choose to live? And that is, how do we choose to live in order to get to that place we want to go? How do we choose to live when we get to that place that we want to go to? And that's, what we're, that's what Jesus is rattling our cage about this evening. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just deconstruct many of the society-wide promises, whether they're the first century's promises or the 21st century promises. Jesus also does this beautiful thing of reconstructing a new way of living. He gives us better promises that yield more real results, more long-term happiness, and more long-term hope. The brilliance of Jesus is that his suggested direction doesn't dismiss our longings. He doesn't dismiss our longings for significance. He doesn't dismiss our feelings about being left out or passed by. He includes them. He includes them. And he offers us three signposts that help us to move towards these things to keep us moving towards him and the Christian way of life. But fair warning, the descriptions that Jesus and the Christian life may go against what a lot of us think Jesus and our life should look like. Okay, here are the three signposts, and they're on your outline, on your handout. First, verses 13 through 14, Jesus tells us to look out for the narrow entrance. And you'll know the narrow entrance because it promises a hard road to a good life. Second, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is telling us to look out for true guides. You'll know they're true because of what they teach and they act, how they teach and how they act, and whether that's based on the truth. And then third and finally, verses 21 through 23, Jesus tells us to look out for humble friends. You'll know them by the way they talk about themselves. You'll know them better by what the way they talk about themselves than when they talk about God. That's sort of his three signposts to look out for. So, as usual, we're going to begin with the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 14, and we're going to look at finding the narrow entrance. So, if you turn there with me, or think there, or look there with me, the image is actually of an ancient city like, like Jerusalem, with two different sized entrances. I kind of imagine that in your in your mind's eye. One is wide enough for a crowd to enter all at once, huge, and the other entrance is is the other gate is so narrow that only one person at a time can come into the city. And Jesus is telling us to find that narrow one person at a time gate and use it. But pastor and author Tim Keller says that in spiritual matters, uh, what Jesus is saying is wildly unpopular. It's actually wildly popular to say, I'm seeking. It's It's wildly unpopular to say, I found what I'm looking for. And I'm sure it's even more popular, Jesus is just winning points left and right, to say the few will find it, not the many. And the entranceway is really narrow, as in seeming narrow or closed-minded, or as in not wide, not broad, as in seeming broad or open-minded. This, just, this isn't just like our modern, Western, secular, 21st century problem, though, right? 
Jesus is offending, is, is offending, is offending people on purpose. He's using the word narrow in a way that's intentionally challenging, even with his original audience. Biblically, narrow implies death and destruction, like by squashing or crushing. Like you can literally die of narrowness. When you step on a bug, it dies of narrowness, right? It doesn't have the room to be. Um, culturally, just think about that. This is a really uplifting sermon so far. Uh, <laughs> Culturally, polytheistic Greeks and Romans would have been offended by the narrow way to truth or logos or to God, especially because most biblical scholars assume that Jesus is speaking here about how no person can get to God or get to the truth, capital T, except through him, Jesus. A point that Jesus makes more explicitly in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, and John chapter 14, verse 6. We would expect Jesus to say that the gate is wide that leads to life. That's kind of our expectation. That's my expectation when I read this. I kept thinking it was going to change, but it doesn't. The gate, he says the opposite. The gate that leads to life is narrow. It's narrow. And the call to believe this truth, that the gate that leads to life uh, is narrow, can feel hard. And that's why he describes the way beyond the gate as hard or rough. And look... This is like so hard to talk about. It's so hard to talk about for lots of reasons. We think about people, we think about ourselves, we think about society. And I get this really personally. I get this personally as I think about family members, I think about lots of other things that are going on in my heart and my mind. And really verses 13 through 14 make me personally feel like God is so narrow-minded or unloving. I mean, he can't even match up to the US Constitution. Why can't he just have a freedom of religion clause, right? Or then there's all these news stories about absolute religions or fundamentalists like Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and Hindus and yes, even Christians killing innocent people in the name of who? And let's just get really honest. I'm just tired and I'm sure you're just tired of the endless culture wars. The culture wars that rage over science and marriage and healthcare and everything else under the sun. And frankly, who wants to read, let alone post, let alone engage in a face-to-face awkward disagreement with a family member or a friend or a friend of a friend or a friend who actually is a Facebook friend of a friend. Uh, and that's just awkward. Who wants to do that? And so we look, I think, culturally, personally, I look for a safe, neutral space. And I look for a winsome metaphor. I'm just a sucker for a good metaphor. That's what we're looking for. And that's why it's very popular to believe that the world religions are like different blind men. That they're feeling an elephant, the same elephant. One man feels the trunk and calls it Islam. Another man feels the leg and calls it Christianity. Another feels the ear and calls it Buddhism. And so on, right? You've heard that one. Or the other one that maybe is a little spin, a little different, is uh, the different religions are like many paths up the same mountain. There are these many different footpaths that start in different places, but they end up at the same summit. They end up at the same goal, with the same God, at the same mountaintop. So why do other people try to convince other people to take their footpath when the footpath right in front of them is perfectly adequate? Look, as you all know, I'm a sucker. I love a good metaphor. I really do. Huge fan. And these metaphors really do seem so humble. And they're like such withering attacks and closed-minded Arrogance, as if some religious person had absolute knowledge. But think again about what they're saying. I'm just going to put this on the table. You can be very mad at me. That's okay. We can talk about this afterwards. But 
think about the perspective of the person describing the scene for a second. Someone has to have his or her eyes opened and them alone to describe all the other blind people groping an elephant. Right? Somehow they're seeing the whole scene and they're seeing the way that those blind people name the scene. Remember, this is universal reality we're talking about. Someone has eyes wide open in universal reality where everyone else doesn't. Or someone has a bird's eye view that only he or she can see that all of the religious paths end up in the same place. The same top of the same mountain of universal reality. And look, you can only say that all religions have partial truths if you can see the whole truth. And that's kind of what these metaphors are getting at. Um, and they're, they're claiming that. There's a claim to the whole truth, even as they claim that absolute truths uh, are false. And it's sort of a hidden pride to say that Christianity or Buddhism or Islam are all groping after the same God when most of the people who are pious practitioners of those faiths would disagree about the fact that they believe in the same God. Does this all make sense? Not fun to talk about, but we need to talk about it. Okay. So even the position that seems the most humble and the most respectful is not really the most humble or respectful of other faith or philosophical positions. Does that make sense? Are we tracking at least? You don't have to agree, you just have to nod. I'd argue that every idea about how the universe works claims something exceptional or narrow, and it can't help but differentiate itself from other positions that are, well, different. That's why differentiate works, right? And so that's kind of what we're thinking through together. But I, I would argue that Jesus is saying that Christianity is, a, is slightly different because it can, take, it can actually make you truly humble and it can actually make you truly respectful of other people and other beliefs. How is that possible? How can Christianity do that? Because according to verses 13 through 14, Christianity is offering an entrance, it's offering acceptance before it makes you take the hard road of obedience. Does that make sense? The entrance is offered before the obedience is offered. The acceptance is offered before the obedience. Whereas every other religion that I've studied, philosophy that I've worked through, and again, I'm not an expert by any means, done some window shopping, some trying out of the clothes, but all of the study, the study that I've done and the study that many other people have done looks at every other religion and philosophy, and, and they require a hard road or obedience of some sort to get the entrance or acceptance. The, the road comes before the entrance in other religions, whereas in Christianity, the entrance comes before the road. And that obedience could be obedience of education that leads to success, right? Or it could be the obedience of the eightfold path of righteousness that leads to nirvana. While those other forms of being a good person or getting it right seem really broad, they're requiring it, especially think about the narrative of being successful, it's requiring an endlessly narrowing combination of work and opportunities to work out. You have to be like, you can feel like Gregor at the end of it all, right? You can feel like you've missed out on something. Or you can feel like Moby. You get to where you want to go, and then you realize it just can't keep delivering the hope and the happiness that you hoped it would. And instead, I'm, Jesus is offering himself. He's saying, I'm a particular person who lived and died and rose again from the grave at a particular time, the early first century A.D., in a particular place, ancient Judea. And you see, Jesus died outside of the gates of the holy city to bring us into God's holiness. And this can feel like a, a narrow historical entrance. 
can culturally, geographically, can be very narrow. And it requires us to come in and to believe in him one person at a time. But because Jesus has earned this significance for you, and dying he gave it to you, you can't miss out on long-term hope. You can't miss out on long-term happiness. Jesus' abundant life is at offer here. No matter how you go, no matter what your next three weeks go like, if you buy that entrance, hope and happiness can still be yours. Period. That's the promise. And because Jesus has earned significance for you and not just gives it to you, you can't lose this long-term abundance of life. It isn't earned by me, right? It doesn't need my cosmic maintenance to happen. And so if I'm doing well in life, I don't have to worry that God's going to sort of all of a sudden throw things off because he doesn't like me. He's for you. He's for your good. He's for your hope and your happiness. And really, like, verses 15 through 20, point two, appropriately follow verses 13 through 14, which was a hard point one. Trust me. The true guides are needed because the Christian path is actually really rough and tough. And these true guides have got to be honest about the gate, Jesus. And they've got to be honest about themselves. And this is going to be really awkward because I'm a pastor, and that's what he's talking about here, which is really fun. So I'm just going to talk bluntly about myself. Okay. So, look... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this for everybody. We can't live the Christian life on our own. We need the church. And that's sort of what guides are for. It's not a solo hike. You need people around you. You need peers. And you need friends. And you need ministries. And you need people in front of you. You need ministers. You need guides. You need elders. You need pastors. You need mentors. And this passage tells us basically to just use our guides carefully. To judge how and whether they guide us in the truth by looking at their, and again, my fruit. This is really fun. This is really fun. Um, excited about this passage. Okay, so one consistent measurable. It's been really good so far. Uh, one me- consistent measurable fruit is the focus of their teaching. Okay, what's the focus of the guide's teaching? Over time and through their words, does the person you look for for guidance spiritually, maybe even in the Christian life, emphasize the person and the work of Jesus? Does this person believe that Jesus is God become man who rescued, rescues, and will rescue his people and all the earth? It's important. Is that something, an important point that the person returns to? Or in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, are all the promises of God in life, in the Bible, yes and amen in Christ Jesus? It's a good question. Another consistent and measurable fruit is whether the teacher is teachable. And I hope you take this seriously. I'm going to put this to myself for a second. If you totally disagreed with what I said earlier, take me up on that. I'd love, it. I'd love to be teachable. I'd love, I'd love to talk about something if you disagree with me. That's awesome. Okay? So let me try to put my money where my mouth is or make my walk match my talk. So here's the question. Does your guide believe what he or she teaches? Do they believe that it is Jesus who heals, not I? Do they believe that I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase? And at the same time, are they making a good faith effort to live by Jesus' vision about how to be more fully human? And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Living by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. And then there's the guide's teaching and character. But here's what's so interesting, and this is what we don't get. It can't be seen from far away. We can't see how a guide works and how a guide looks like from far away. 
That's what verse 15 is all about, right? It's hard to spot a wolf in sheep's clothing unless you and the guide are in the flock together. Otherwise, it just looks like another sheep. He or she looks like another sheep. This is a big reason why I think guides like pastors should be actually be knowable. While you don't have to meet with a pastor, you do need to be able to meet with a pastor. Does that make sense? Like you have to, that person has to be a human being that's accessible. Kindness of action and sincerity of words are harder to fake in close quarters. They're especially hard to fake in close quarters over a long period of time. And that's why a spiritual guide can't truly be known over a short time. You've got to know them over a while. And that's what verses 16 through 20 are all about, right? It's hard to know whether a teacher, uh, a tree bears good fruit or bad fruit in just one season. Just like it's hard to know whether a teacher's words or actions or character are uh, good or bad in just, in just a short amount of time. And that's why we need to settle with a particular community, with particular leaders in order to enjoy, to eat the fruit of, but also to evaluate deep-seated things like motives. <laughs> Is the person for you and for your growth? Because there's a lot of people that aren't. Is the person for Jesus and for his glory or out for self? And this comes out over time, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you get nourished by the actions and words that are more like grapes than thorns? Or the words and the actions more like thistles than figs? AKA, is it nourishing? Or are you just eating something that's very sharp most of the time? But please don't expect people like me to ever possibly be all grapes and all figs. We just don't have that capability. If that's what you sense or a guide promises that, he or she's probably a wolf. Put that on the table. I think Frederick Buechner, who saves me every time, has a great quotation about, that's semi-related, <laughs> on content and character of true guides doing ministry. And he writes this about preaching. The trouble with many sermons is not so much that the preachers are out of touch with what's going on in the world or in books or in, ideo- or in theology but that the preachers are out of touch with what is going on in their own lives and in the lives of the people they're preaching to. Whether their subject is hope or faith or charity, let them speak out of the living truth of their own experience of these high matters. Let them have the courage to be themselves. And really this lack of courage to be ourselves the promise that we want to make to be all grapes and all figs and no thistles and no thorns, that's at the heart of verses 21 through 23 in our third and final point about humble friends. If the critique of Christianity from the irreligious, modern, Western liberal society is that it's way too narrow, it's way too exclusive, the critique from the religious, traditional, non-Western society is the opposite they would say that Christianity is way too loose. It's way too fast and way too loose with the rules. There's too many Christians with too many thorns and too many thistles. Specifically, Jesus doesn't care about us keeping the rules or being good enough. He doesn't give us enough rules to really know what to do in a given situation. It's the critique that many people have for Christianity on that side of the ledger. Just like Jesus, he intentionally challenges the left-leaning progressive side of things, now he's actually going to challenge the right-leaning conservative side of things. Whether that's the first century Jewish leaders or the 21st century moral majority. 
And verses 21 through 23, he gives a case study of exceptionally good rule-keeping people. Listen to their credentials. They say all of the right things. Did we not prophesy in your name? They, they show all of the right emotions. Lord, Lord, not once but twice with feeling. They do all the right spiritual activities, spiritual activities that many of us would wish we could even possibly do. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But in verse 23, Jesus tells them, and this is a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson, you don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Okay? That, so what's Jesus' point? Why isn't being good enough good enough? We're told that many people think that the hard way comes before the narrow gate. These people tell Jesus they deserve to get to God. They deserve to be with God. They deserve to get hope and happiness. And here's why they deserve it. Because of their many good accomplishments that they did for Jesus. They've earned it. God owes them. They have leverage. But God says of these people, I never knew you. I never knew you. And therefore, knowing Jesus Christ means we don't do good things to save ourselves. We don't do good things to give ourselves significance, happiness, or hope, ultimately. We don't do good things to earn happiness and hope and significance from God. Instead, knowing Jesus Christ means we do good things to celebrate God's love. We get to confess that we don't have the right words. We don't have the right emotions. We don't have the right activities. But we do have a significance and a happiness and a hope that only Jesus can give. And so we can be humble friends and learn how to give what we have received to others. We get to give them hope and give them happiness and give them a sense of significance that's not our own. But that comes through us and by us. And so, like Gregor, when life feels like musical chairs and everyone else is getting seated and you're not, when we get anxious about the future, which I'm sure some of you are right now, about missing our chance by missing the grade, missing out by missing the right extracurricular or the right job position or opportunity, fly to Jesus' door, his narrow door. Sure, it's like a one-person-at-a-time deal, but that's why, he, that's why he can personally tell you that the penthouse apartment in Barcelona, Spain, isn't what life's about. But Jesus, in these verses, is also reminding us of what life is actually about. It's the adventure, right here and right now, in a commonplace room like this, in a union on a rainy day. Yes, I get it. It doesn't feel that way. Some pitch here, Druin. That doesn't feel like that. But you know what? To paraphrase C.S. Lewis... Adventures never feel like adventures while you're having them. <laughs> adventures never feel like adventures when you're having them. They only feel like it after the fact. And in case you were wondering by the end of the story, Moby ended up, he actually never gave the CDs back. He never gave the Sounds of the South CDs back to Gregor, but he did email him three days later. And this is what Moby wrote. This might sound odd, but I realize I never said a true heartfelt thank you for giving me those CDs. So in all sincerity, thank you. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to say thank you. In an email, of all things, Moby gave Gregor some significance. And that's just an example 
of what the adventure could look like for us. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, some very hard words uh, that you gave us tonight, and I pray that um, you'd forgive me for the way that I sloppily handled them. I'm sure that happened. Uh, I, I pray that you would help them rest how they would rest, that perhaps they feel disagreeable, but the person would, um, would disagree. Um, perhaps they feel um, comforting, and the person would feel comforted. And I pray that you'd be with us no matter how we receive these words, that you'd remind us of who we are, um, and that there's hope, and that there's happiness, and that there's significance. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's short-term, but certainly long-term in you, Jesus. Thank you for these promises that are true, that prove true over and over again in the lives of so many. Um, and I pray that you would be with these students in the midst of what they're, what they're in, in the muck of the end of the semester. Be kind to them. Be kind to me. In Jesus' name, amen.